It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Hello? Talk Hello, Nick. Recorded live. Yeah. It looks like we're live. Uh, let me click over here and look at this okay. thing and make sure. Get my chat room open. Okay, I tell you what, Nick, it's showing here that we are live and the show is recording, and I'll let it this part out. <laughs> tomorrow before right. I post it to YouTube. So let's okay. go ahead and get a start point right where we're at. Okay. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Talk Now Radio. Um, we're no topic as taboo. This is your host, Royce the Redneck Radio Man. And joining me today is going to be Nick Redburn. And we're going to be discussing close encounters of the fatal kind. This is one of uh, Nick's more recent books, as I understand. He does have at least one more, a little more recent than this one, than I've been seeing on the web here and there and at Amazon and a few other places, so we might get to touch bases on that real quick. Uh, let everybody know I am new to talk to you, so I hope to meet you folks, hope to get to know you, and I hope we have a good time learning together, growing together, and that we can make this show a success over here like it was at uh, Block Talk Radio when it was over there. So, Nick, how are you doing today? Hey, Royce, I'm doing good, thanks. I'm just keeping busy on the writing and... Uh lecturing front. I just got back uh, yesterday from uh, speaking on the Men in Black Mystery at the um, MUFON Ohio conference, which went down well. So. Uh, you're talking about your book or the subject in general? Oh, the subject in general. I mean, I did that book, The Real Men in Black, and sort of co- I covered some of that, but also it was basically like an overview of the entire Men in Black Mystery with a, with a look at all the different theories that have been put forward for who or what they might be. So. Yeah, I remember reading that book. It was really very fascinating. And I think one of the most interesting theories that I've ever heard on the men in black, at least to me, came from you when you were talking about the tuplas. Now, that, that seemed to have an air of uniqueness to me. Do what now? I'm sorry about the watch. It broke up a bit then. Oh, okay. Tuplas, T-U-P-L-A. Oh, Oh, I mispronounced yeah. it. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah, well, the Tulpa theory is an interesting one. It's the idea that... Um, the, the, well, the tulpa, it's sort of a concept um, very sort of um, prevalent and relevant in uh, Tibetan Buddhist teachings, the idea that the human mind can create images, but if you know how to do it, then you can externalize those things, and it's, you kind of give life to a creation of the mind. You know, you focus on a particular image in your mind, and you can externalize it, and it takes on some sort of almost like a semi-independent form of life. Uh, in, in essence, you've sort of given birth to a, a mind creature or a mind monster or something or like that. Or sort of like a golem? What's that? Or sort of like a golem? Yeah, exactly. Just exactly like that. And um, I think there's enough data for me, at least, to suggest that it's a viable scenario to explain some phenomena. I don't think, of course, that it explains everything. You know, I think the idea that all paranormal phenomena could be explained by falling under one banner doesn't work but i think for some phenomena it does work 
Well, Nick, I was really kind of glad you mentioned that Men in Black, uh, you know, uh, lecture you were giving because it kind of gave me a chance to ask you this question. Uh, given the research that you put into this book, uh, Close Encounters of the Fatal Kind, do you think there could be a link, like, a, you know, the officialdom or whoever was maybe doing some of these murders or what made it look like murders or were suspected murders, you think they could have been used in golems so it couldn't be traced back to them? Um, I hadn't really given that a thought, but, I mean, it's interesting because some of the men in black do act in that fashion where they don't seem to be fully self-aware of who or what they are. It's almost as if they are created out of a mold to perform one specific task that's to threaten people. So I guess you could take it a stage further, you know, the idea of... Um, Tulpas literally killing people. I mean, people who've created tulpas um, have actually said that sometimes these things actually want to hang on to their existence. You know, they they enjoy the fact that something's brought them into creation, and they they become quite violent and um, deadly, basically, when people try and reabsorb them. And to, that's the only way to really get rid of them is to sort of reabsorb them into the mind, and then try and think them out of existence, which is a very hard thing to do, you know, trying trying to stop thinking about something is incredibly difficult but that's that's the way to get rid of them and people say that these things become aware of when you're trying to kill them off and they sort of tenaciously hang on to life. You know, it's interesting you should mention that because that's pretty much the same thing that uh, Bob Curran wrote in his book, uh, something to do with monsters. I don't have it in front of me, and I haven't read this book in two or three years, so I don't remember the title, but he was discussing golems at the time, and he described the exact same attributes that you're describing. Yeah, I mean, it's something that, although, as I said, tulpas uh, are really sort of a concept that mainly were born out of the whole Tibetan Buddhist um, angles, um, you can find similar creatures and, and themes and concepts similar to this throughout numerous cultures and it, it generally follows one particular path even though there are different you know subtle differences and that path being the idea of the human mind being put into like an altered state a state of meditation and deep focusing on one particular image that you know you just create from your own mind it could be like a i don't know a dragon to a, a black dog with glowing red eyes anything and the the idea is to almost get into like a, a self-hypnotic state, an altered state of mind, and focus on that image, and then slowly give it form over time to the point where it can be project, projected outwardly, and then it sort of breaks free of its moorings to the mind, and, and sometimes can run rampant, and um, you know that's when you people get into problems. I can see how. <clears throat> well... One of the things I believe you was writing about in your book, and you wrote many things about, about many things, in other words, but you were also talking about Roswell and an incident there that was kind of shady. And another thing you did, and we can get to that this one in a minute, was uh, I was noticing how you were showing, you know, same people over long periods of time involved in, in – um, more than one, like, murder case or a possible murder case. But we can come to that one in a minute. Uh, why don't you tell us real quick about Roswell? Well, yeah, I mean, everybody's sort of heard of the, you know, the Roswell story. Um, the fa Well, the world, certainly the most famous UFO case ever. 
Um, and of course, a lot has been written over the years um, about the event itself, uh, you know, the crash, where the bodies of the crew were taken, etc., etc. But many people aren't aware um, of the the human casualties in the Roswell story as well, and um, that sort of really takes us into deeply conspiratorial areas, pretty much along the lines of uh, people being silenced and possibly killed because of what they knew about Roswell, and possibly about what they were going to talk about, you know, had they decided to go public with, with what they actually knew. And so this is, this is an area that is sort of ripe for investigation and study at a, at a very deep level. And we actually find some very interesting stories linked directly to the main players in Roswell. Now, for people who are familiar with Roswell or not, the, the rancher who found all the wreckage on the Foster Ranch in Lincoln County, New Mexico, in the summer of 47, was Mac Brazel. Now, Mac Brazel had a son named Vern, and for a number of years there have been sort of quiet rumors spread around the UFO community that Vern Brazel may have seen some of the bodies um, found on the ranch, and, you know, it may have sort of psychologically disturbed him very deeply because he was, you know, he's only a young boy um, at the time. Now, what's intriguing is that um, it was actually only eight years old at the time, which you know, could have plunged him into a really deep state of you know, trauma, seen exposed to weird sort of rotting, decaying bodies under the, you know, the New Mexico sun in, um, in the summer of 1947. But what is intriguing and kind of tragic and mysterious is that um, Vern Brazel actually left New Mexico as soon as he was able to and sort of wandered around the U.S., joined the Navy, and then while he's only in his mid-twenties, he was found dead with a, a bullet in his head. And, um, you know, there have been a lot of rumors, was it murder, was it suicide? And um, it's sort of one of those, almost like a skeleton in the closet of, of Roswell. Um, but there are other stories like this, for example, um, of <clears throat> a nurse or possibly several nurses who may have been exposed to the the bodies when they were initially recovered and brought back to the uh, military base in Roswell. Um, stories about uh, you know, nurses being threatened, moved to new installations where they wouldn't be able to talk to each other, obviously, but also being watched throughout their lives. Now, one classic example of this is a woman named Miriam Bush. Who, she wasn't actually a nurse at the base military hospital in 47, but she was the executive secretary and she worked under the chief medical officer, a man named Lieutenant Colonel Harold Warren. Now, Miriam Bush's family have said that way back in the summer of 47, she actually confided into to her parents that she'd seen all these strange bodies brought into the base, and apparently nobody knew what they were or where they were from. They were just sort of found at this particular site in the desert. And Miriam Bush became very, very paranoid over the years that someone was watching and following her, keeping tabs on her, essentially. And this continued for decades to the point where that paranoia just, you know, overwhelmed her, essentially. And um, one particular occasion in uh, 1989, she checked into a hotel room rather curiously under her sister's name and address instead of her own. And what happened was that she was found the next day um, dead with a plastic bag over her head and actually bruises on her arms. Now, 
because the room was locked from the inside, it was put down to suicide. But if it was a suicide, it was a very strange one. Um, and on top of that, if you're going to kill yourself, why check in under a false name? What's the, you know, if you're going to be dead the next day, it makes no difference. And the fact that she was becoming more and more paranoid that she was being watched. So something Sounds more like she was trying to hide from somebody. Yeah, it sounds like, you know, something <laughs> had, been, had tipped off, someone had tipped her off or she, you know, had realized she was being watched more and she was just looking for a, you know, somewhere to hide out. And then, of course, she never left the room alive. So. Of course, now by going into that room, he might have thought she was hiding from him, but actually yeah. provided a place by, where they could separate her by herself and get away with it. Yeah, and I think I think what this uh, case of Miriam Bush demonstrates is something intriguing, is that the people, the surviving people from Roswell may still be being watched. You know, they may have been watched throughout their entire lives just to make sure, you know, they weren't speaking to anybody. And I don't think, you know, I mean, obviously most people who were involved in the Roswell case didn't die mysterious deaths. I think the ones who did may well have been those who were respected people who could actually talk about something definitive, like, you know, hey, I was the executive secretary on the base and I saw the bodies. That would sit up and make people sit up and listen, you know. Well, what about Marcel? Nobody tried to kill him, did they? No, they didn't. But what's interesting is that in a sort of semi-related way, in the same way that Vern Brazel and various other people plunged into sort of psychological states, um, it is a fact that in the wake of the Roswell event, and, uh, and this isn't coming from me, this is actually coming from the family, but um, Jesse Marcel and his wife both descended into alcoholism. Um, and that's something that happened with a number of the people um, involved in the case. Um, just to give you one example of several, um, there was another person, a young boy at the time, named Dee Proctor, who helped uh, Matt Brazel to, um, to work on the Foster Ranch. You know, he wasn't an employee. He was like seven or eight years old, but he, he just enjoyed, you know, helping out around the farm and, you know, being a cowboy sort of thing. And um, Dee Proctor is also rumoured to have been with Brazel when he stumbled upon the wreckage and possibly one or more of the bodies. Now, there's no doubt that the event radically uh, affected Dee Proctor. I say just a little boy at the time, but reportedly the military came out and threatened him and his family. And then as life developed, he became reclusive, wouldn't leave the house. Um, his marriage ended badly and he died basically from alcoholism. Um, and so he was another sort of casualty, um, you know, fatal casualty of the Roswell crash. Yeah, Roswell ain't the only place that this kind of stuff is occurring. As I understand, there was also uh, Mari Allen had a, an, a, a, what, one or two deaths that were kind of uh, suspicious? Oh, well, he actually had a couple more than that. Um, yeah, but the Maury Island case is interesting because, you know, everybody thinks of the modern era of ufology. They think of Kenneth Arnold sighting um, in Washington State of these strange objects overflying the skies and um, they became known as flying disks or flying saucers. Well, Maury Island actually predates, not by long, but just predates by a few days, um, Kenneth Arnold's sighting. And it occurred at a place called Maury Island in Washington State. And Maury Island um, 
the case itself is an intriguing one and it originated with a man named Harold Dahl. And Harold Dahl was out uh, working the harbour of Maury Island and um, was witness to what we would call like a squadron of UFOs flying over the area. One of them seemed to be manoeuvring and moving in an erratic fashion, which suggested it was possibly malfunctioning. And that was that view was emphasized and confirmed when the other objects sort of closed in and it as if to surround it, but then it suddenly exploded, sharing all this wreckage into the harbour. And because uh, Dahl was on a boat with his crew and son um, and the family dog, um, they scooped up as much of this material as they could, which showered down on them and actually actually killed the dog. So they went back to, to the shore and Dahl contacted a man named Fred Chrisman. Fred Chrisman was a guy who had some intriguing ties to the world of the intelligence community and who actually popped up years later in the Kennedy assassination. Um, and he had sort of an unclear working relationship with Harold Dahl. And so we don't really know the full story of all that. But what happened was that Dahl told Chrisman all the wreckage that was found. And um, so they scooped more up, and uh, both uh, Dahl and Chrisman uh, had it in their possession. Um, Dahl was ultimately visited by a man in black type, an early man in black type character who threatened the lives of him and his family, and that sort of caused Dahl to back away from it. Now, as far as Chrisman was concerned, um, because the story began to get out and he had access to, to some of the wreckage, the military got involved. And what happened from there was that, you know, with the military realizing this was a brand new phenomenon that they had to get to the bottom of, uh, obviously, um, what they did was to dispatch uh, two personnel, uh, First Lieutenant Frank Mercer Brown and Captain William Lee Davidson of Army Intelligence to go out and try and figure out what was going on at Maury Island. Well, at the same time, Kenneth Arnold, who, as I said, just days later had his own encounter, um, he was asked to go out there by Ray Palmer, who was the editor of Amazing Stories magazine, and um, essentially to, again, find out what was going on. Well, it turns out that um, Captain Davidson and Lieutenant Brown um, acquired a fair amount of this strange wreckage that showered down. And um, they were due to um, take it to Wright Field, Ohio, which is now Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, which has a long history of involvement in the UFO subject. But not long after they'd taken to the skies from, um, from the airport where they landed, um, Brown and Davidson were killed when the B-29 aircraft they were flying burst into flames, crashed to the ground, and killed both men in a, like a fiery explosion at Kelso, Washington. Um, then there were two um, media men, Ted Morello and um, one other guy named Paul Lance, who were looking into the case. They both died soon afterwards. So, in other words, and actually one more before I forget, Kenneth Arnold, when he was flying home, he almost had a fatal accident in his aircraft. He just about managed to land it because of his skills as a pilot. And it turned out that um, the excuse me, the fuel line on uh, his aircraft had been left open. And when he took to the skies, it obviously froze the fuel tank. And that's what caused his aircraft to almost catastrophically crash. And there were rumors that whoever refueled the plane deliberately left it open to ensure that he was killed as well. So Maury Island is, is sort of littered 
with deaths from, you know, the family dog right through to two military pilots, to two media men, and almost to Kenneth Arnold, the guy who kicked off the entire UFO mystery. Well, one of the things that I noticed when I was reading the book is that, and this is common with you with, with most all the books I've seen of yours, is the chunk of your information comes directly from the freedom of information window. So we know that you've got good sources, in other words, and I wanted to point that out to everybody listening. Well, yeah, that's it. I appreciate you saying that, uh, Rose, because the one main reason being that um, I actually reproduce um, in the book a photocopy of one of the original documents which shows a photograph of the wreckage. And uh, it looks like sort of strange, gray, dark, black, that kind of color fragments. And um, that's actually one of the original pieces that was found and that was due to be taken uh, or at least similar to one of the ones that was due to be taken to right field and that uh, mysteriously vanished when the plane crashed. That was one of the intriguing things as well. Not only were the, the two military personnel killed, but the box that they had with all the wreckage in was never found, or at least it was officially never found. Also, everybody, if you all want to learn more, you can go to Nick's blog, Nick's World of Whatever, at uh, nickredfern14.blogspot.com. And uh, you can also learn more from me at talknowradio.blogspot.com. I decided I had to get one of those just like you and be a copycat. <laughs> I, like, I, like, I like using Blogspot. It's sort of a, you know, you can lots of different templates, and it's sort of a you know, pretty cool way to put a blog together. So. Yeah, I think it's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Um, now, there is one guy that you mentioned in your book, if you don't mind me jumping ahead a little, that I've been very curious about because, as I understand, this guy also had some connection with the uh, Philadelphia experiment, uh, Jessup, or I'm trying to remember his name. You probably know who I'm talking about. Uh, oh, yeah, I, Maurice Jessup. Yeah. yeah, him. I haven't read the book. Uh, I mean, I read it while I was still in the hospital about a month or two back and trying to pull names out of thin air from that far back. When I had meet this many people in the hospital, it can be kind of tricky. <laughs> yeah. But and anyway, you know what I'm talking about. Now, this guy has a connection to um, the um, Philadelphia Experiment, but does he also have connections to Roswell, do you know? Um, I'm not aware of any connections that he had to Roswell personally. Um, but, yeah, he was, I guess, his biggest, I wouldn't say biggest claim to fame, because that kind of makes it sound like, you know, he didn't do anything else. But Morris Jessup was somebody who came on the UFO scene in the early 50s, and he was fascinated by two things, one being the obviously the modern, the then modern era of ufology kicking off in the late 40s, but the other thing that fascinated him was the entire issue of like the ancient astronaut scenario. Now this was early 50s, so we're talking, you know, 15, 16 years before Eric von Daniken was even on the scene. You know, Chariots of the Gods was 1968. Jessup was talking about ancient aliens in relation to the pyramids and things like this in 51, 52, 53. And he believed that all these massive stone blocks, etc., were moved by something along the lines of levitation or anti-gravity, and he, he felt it was done by extraterrestrials. Now, it turns out that when he wrote about this in one of his books called The Case for the UFO, Jessup, like a lot of authors, you know, began to receive feedback from the people who read his books. And um, one of these was a guy named Carlos Allende, 
who claimed a great deal of knowledge of sort of secret technology that could levitate things like stones in the ancient past. And he claimed that um, there were people actively in today's world trying to understand that ancient technology and figure out how it worked. And they were having some success, but also some failures in, in trying to figure out, you know, how to move massive objects using something like levitation. Now, on top of that, Allende claimed knowledge of a classified wartime experiment to make a, a military ship invisible. It's become famously known as the Philadelphia Experiment, which I'm sure many of you, your listeners will have heard of. Um, now, people have sort, a lot of people have sort of, you know, criticized the story of the Philadelphia Experiment and Allende, etc. But the fact of the matter is that not long after the book came out and not long after Allende was speaking with Jessup, um, a copy of Jessup's book was sent to uh, the Department of the Navy in Washington, D.C., and it specifically reached an office that was researching advanced and new and novel weapons techniques, you know, new um, sort of military devices for the Navy, that kind of thing. And um, the Navy then contacted Jessup. When they got this copy of his book, uh, somebody had annotated it um, with all these scribblings and notes and making comments about the Philadelphia experiment. And it turns out, although it was done anonymously, the Navy found out through Jessup that it was actually Carlos Allende who was doing it. So they, they flew Jessup out to the Navy, and essentially it wasn't like an interrogation. They just sat down and interviewed him about his thoughts on um, ancient levitation, levitation technology, the Philadelphia experiment, and much more. And Jessup got really worried and paranoid that, on the one hand, he was excited that the Navy was taking an interest in his concepts and his book. You know, it's not every day an author on UFO books gets invited out, you know, to speak with the Navy about his, his or her theories. But that's what happened. But when Jessup got back, um, strange things began to happen. He started to get hang-up phone calls in the middle of the night. Sometimes he would answer them. And there would be like weird electronic noises down the phone. And not only did this worry him, but it massively disturbed his sleep processes and, you know, made him uh, confused and irritable. This is, you know, he's grabbing like two hours of sleep a night, which nobody really can work successfully on, you know. Um, and then other weird things began to happen, like mail interference, mail opened and resealed, but in a fashion to make it clear that, you know, somebody wanted him to know that his mail was being monitored. Um, then he had a really weird car accident where his car went off the edge of the road. And he couldn't explain or understand how it happened. He felt it was almost as if his thought processes had been taken over and he was almost being subliminally driven to kill himself. Well, that is ominous enough for, because of what happened next. In early 1959, his body was found in his car in a Florida park with, an, um, with a hose pipe going from the exhaust through the front window, and, of course, he was dead from carbon monoxide poisoning. But then there are questions as to whether it really was carbon monoxide poisoning, because although it looked like a suicide, what's quite baffling is that steps were taken to ensure that his body wasn't autopsied. Now, of course, if you die from carbon monoxide poisoning, you die because the carbon monoxide fumes from the engine go into the hose pipe through the window and you breathe them in. So you would have massive amounts of carbon monoxide in your blood and an autopsy would, would show that massive amount of carbon monoxide. But the fact that he wasn't autopsied 
you know, we cannot prove that he really did die from carbon monoxide poisoning. He was basically pronounced dead and then buried, you know, and and that in itself is very strange that no steps were taken to see if it actually was carbon monoxide poisoning that had killed him. Well, if he was already dead when they put him in the car, uh, assuming he was murdered uh, and he was already dead and they stuck the hose in there, would it make a difference in the reading on the uh, carbon monoxide in his body? I mean, since he wouldn't be inhaling, it wouldn't show up the same, would it? No, it wouldn't. What what you would get, if he was in the car alive, he would have breathed in massive amounts of carbon monoxide that would have killed him. If he was already dead, the amount of carbon monoxide, you know, that would be detectable in his body would be so minor because he hadn't, he wouldn't have breathed it in. He would already be dead. You know, it's kind of like the analogy was if you had like a cardboard box in the back of the car, you know, that would obviously, you know, detect you wouldn't detect carbon monoxide poison on that because it's just a box. But it would be the same analogy. If you're not breathing it in, you know, it's not going to be detectable in the fashion as if you were breathing it in. I know the same principle applies to drowning. And this is how they, this is how they find out if people are dead when they are drowned, uh, but, you know, killed beforehand, in other words, in uh, murder cases. So I thought maybe the same principle would apply. Yeah, and that's one of the, you know, the strange things that, he talked about all this weirdness leading up to his death, feeling that he'd been subliminally, potentially controlled to drive his car off the edge of the road. And I speculate in the book, maybe he had been sort of subliminally, you know, controlled and hypnotized to kill himself. Possibly the car accident was the first attempt that somebody tried out on him, almost like a Manchurian candidate, you know, where you're... That's what I was just thinking. <laughs> yeah. But instead of killing someone else... You're programmed to kill yourself. And um, maybe, you know, he was lucky to survive the first one, and then he was sort of triggered again, and that time succeeded. So, in other words, it could have been a case of a, a staged suicide, or it could have been like a subliminally controlled event in which he really did do it, but he was under the control and the thought processes of somebody who had previously you know, put him into this hypnotic state that could be activated at any time. Well, was it uh, Morris Jessup or was it uh, George Adamski, I'm thinking of, that you wrote about in this book that also ended up having links further towards the back of the book with another uh, strange case, and I think a case that was in Britain. Oh, yeah, you're talking about the one, yeah, in a village, a little English village called Scoriton in the county of Devon, which is in the southwest of England, very old county, an old village as well, Scoriton. Um, this is a sort of a really um, weird story, and um, it all revolves around events that occurred in the 1960s. Now, of course, you know, there a lot of weird UFO events went on um, in the 1960s, but this one in particular sort of really... Um, sort of stands out in the sort of the weird stakes, you know, when you're talking about um, sort of curious deaths and, um, you know, the the idea that people have been sort of murdered for what they, for their involvement in the UFO issue, if you like, not so much what they knew. Now, this particular case, um, the one that we're talking about now, involved a guy named Edward Bryant. And uh, Edward Bryant uh, lived with his wife and children in this little English village called Scariton. And one particular day in 1965, he said that he saw 
um, like a classic flying saucer type craft land in a field not too far from where he lived. And um, sort of a strange situation that he reported that people often report in UFO cases of a, of a close encounter kind where the reality didn't seem to be what it was and you know all the sound around him came to a halt like he was in a vacuum and almost in a dreamlike state but he said that he saw and communicated with these very human looking aliens similar to the classic long-haired contactee space brother aliens of the 1950s and um he <laughs> excuse me he said he thought he heard the word Yamsky mentioned, and then some researchers speculated that could have been a Damsky, as in Georgia Damsky, who actually died the day before the sighting occurred. Uh, Damsky died on April 23, 1965, and the Edward Bryant case was April 24, 1965. Now, it would have been just like a regular, if it, you know, if you can call it regular, but like a regular contactee space brother type landing, you know, where they impart information and then leave. Um, except for the fact that um, Bryant subsequently developed a very aggressive uh, brain tumor that, that killed him extraordinarily quickly. Now, whether or not there is a direct connection, we'll never know for sure. But in the late 1970s, uh, a shadowy, almost like Machiavellian character surfaced, a man named Bosco Nedelkovich, um, who had done work for the State Department and the CIA and various other agencies. And he, he went public. Well, it didn't so much go public. He spoke to a researcher who's still active on the field today, Rich Reynolds. Um, Rich runs a, a blog called UFO Conjectures. And Nedelkovich told Rich that although there was like a real UFO phenomenon, he said that sort of rogue shadow agencies had decided to see how the human mind could be manipulated with sophisticated um, drugs and technologies. And they decided to use the UFO phenomenon as a means just to see how easily like a, a ruse could be pulled over on someone. And uh, Nedelkovich said that um, the Arthur Deskin, the Edward Bryant case was staged and that in reality, um, Bryant was subjected to mind control and mind altering technologies, including microwave exposure. And he said that the microwave technology was overused and used recklessly. And he said that that's what prompted the development of the, the brain tumor. So in other words, what we have is sort of some sort of rogue agency operating outside of the government. Um, engaging in fabricating UFO events, not to discredit the UFO subject, but it was more along the lines of, well, if we can make people think they're seeing aliens, we can make them believe they're seeing anything. That was the idea, that, you know, choose something that's really controversial and see if we can make people believe it. So uh, Also, if you can make them believe it, then you can convince them that it's aliens doing it and not the government. Well, exactly. And, uh, and that was basically the thrust of the story, that Bryant was recklessly exposed to this microwave technology and then it unfortunately led to his death from a from a rapidly acting brain tumor and that all of that is actually 100 percent true the only thing we're not able to prove right now is the Nedelkovich aspect of the story but i mean we know a great deal about what went on both years before and since in the field of mind control and mind manipulation so it's certainly not anything that's you know fantastic or, or unbelievable Right. Now, you talked about a rogue element. 
And I, I think that's an interesting point to touch down on because when you see people posting on Facebook and Yahoo groups and places like that, everybody seems to be of the idea that the whole entire governmental system is corrupt or the whole entire religious institution is corrupt or both of them is corrupt. Or, I mean, it, nobody seems to realize that you're not going to have any one system 100% corrupt. They're going to be infiltrated, if anything. Well, no, you're right. And, I mean, this is a very important point that I stress in the book, is that, you know, people say, why is the government killing all these UFO researchers off? And I point out, I actually don't, I honestly don't think the government is guilty or responsible of killing any of these researchers. What I think is that certainly we know the government was very active, you know, the military was very active from the 40s through the 60s in the UFO subject. And then after that, you know, Blue Book was shut down and then there were claims that, well, we're not interested in this anymore. What I think happened is that while there was legitimate, solid UFO research undertaken by the government, the military, the elected, you know, governments and, and the known agencies like the Air Force, the Army, Navy, etc., from the 40s to the 60s, I think there's enough strong evidence to suggest that certainly by the late 60s, early 70s, all of this material was transferred and data, possibly bodies and wreckage, was transferred to what we might call like a shadow agency, a rogue agency that operates outside of the government, that gets its money through alternative means and black budget funding, and that isn't answerable to Congress, isn't possibly even answerable to the presidential office because the president may not even know. And I think 99.9% .9 of government people know nothing of these agencies or this agency. So I actually don't think the government, the Air Force, the CIA, NSA, FBI, I don't think any of these people are guilty at all in any of these deaths. But someone is, and I think it's some, it is some sort of rogue shadow agency that probably has sort of tentacles and strands around the world and linked with big business and corporations and, and things like this. And, and I think they're the ones today who are sitting on the UFO secrets. And because they're a rogue agency, um, you know, that essentially has an open book to do what it needs to do to keep the UFO secrets, sometimes it crosses the line. And, um, and as I said, I think even the government isn't really aware of who's doing this or even why. That's a very good point and very well may not be. Uh, except for one little thing you did mention about the CIA. Uh, I don't know how accurate it is, but I've actually read some things where uh, the CIA have had their own uh, hands in the cookie jar, especially with drugs, in the past. Well, yeah, there was the MK Ultra program, which was like a, an umbrella program for a lot of sub-projects below it, which essentially was sort of set up in the early 50s, but based upon late 1940s programs. And it involved everything from truth drugs, truth serums, um, ways to hypnotize people, um, chemical drugs and chemical stimulants that could alter the human mind, uh, hallucinogenics. Um, they even checked out, you know, things like hallucinogenic, plants with hallucinogenic properties in South America, um, mushrooms, all sorts of different things, really just to see how the mind could be altered, manipulated, deceived, and used. And, of course, this sort of leads into things like stories of Manchurian candidates and, um, you know, just altering the mind to make you believe it's seeing something it isn't seeing, 
or programming people for future tasks, that kind of thing. And it went on for years. And um, I'm pretty sure to, it's still going on to this day, you know, at a far more sophisticated level than just trying out new drugs. You know, we're talking today about, um, again, microwave technology and even sort of sound weapons in low-frequency sound directed at people can provoke things like anxiety, depression, um, changes in blood pressure, uh, memory problems, you know, so a lot of people have reported, you know, things like this over the years and they could be sort of the victims of some of these directed um, energy weapons, so to speak. Sounds like you might have a future book in the making there. Well, I probably won't cover that area, mainly because things like these so-called non-lethal weapons or sometimes lethal weapons, um, a number of researchers have sort of written various good books on the subject over the years and, uh, you know, they're far more conversant in those areas than me. So I'm pretty sure some of those have probably got, you know, updated versions of older books and newer books coming out on that subject anyway. But, I mean, it's a fascinating issue, the idea of, you know, fascinating but disturbing, not killing people with bullets or bombs or missiles, but silently and slowly you know, just directing something at them, possibly even like from a window of an adjacent building to where their bedroom is and bombarding it, you know, while the person sleeps. There's um, a number of cases like that where, you know, somebody has said somebody moved in next door and there was, you know, they found out that they were linked with, you know, sort of some rogue body and, um, stories of them sort of directing energy weapons, you know, on the on the building next door just to essentially try and play with their minds or to destabilize them even. Yeah, but I kind of reminded of that situation in your book uh, when we're talking about now uh, Close Encounters of the Fatal Kind. I want to say, was it George Udinsky or was it somebody else who jumped out the window that we had little proof that it was murder, although it looks suspicious, could you imagine using a device like that and pointing it at him from somewhere entirely different and you could get him to actually jump out the window? I think he had hung himself well, when he jumped out the window, if I remember correctly. Yeah, the, the person you're talking about is actually the, the first uh, Secretary of Defense, James Forrestal. Yeah, that and, one. Uh, yeah, this was in May 1959, and Forrestal was, you know, he was somebody who was the Secretary of the Navy in the Second World War, very clear-minded, lucid guy, um, you know, being the Secretary of the Navy, this, where we're trying to defeat the Nazis and not even sure we would win, you know, this was a guy who had to have his head firmly on his shoulders. Um, but when he became Secretary of Defense in '47, something strange happened. He began to go through like a, a psychological decline, a very rapid and, and disturbing one. Uh, he fell into deep states of paranoia and fear and uh, confided in people that there were some terrible secrets that he'd learned uh, when he was given the job. And one of the theories is that when he was given the position of Secretary of Defense, that he was essentially briefed on the UFO subject and um, couldn't take it. You know, he was just, the story is he was just one of those people who just, his brain was just blown out of all proportion by the, the sheer level of data and the implications that, something is visiting us and we're not able to do anything about it. And the, the story goes from there that there were people in the official world who were fearful that Forrester would go public and blow the whole thing wide open. And so for that reason, he had to go. 
Now, it is a fact that it is, as he descended into an even greater state of paranoia and anxiety, um, he was uh, admitted to the Bethesda Naval Hospital and um, kept on the 10th floor and um, basically watched closely because there were fears, officially at least, or allegedly, that he was going to commit suicide or might do. Now, it turns out that um, he actually did jump or was pushed or fell, you know, we'd never really know, from the 10th floor onto a third floor canopy. And, of course, if you're going to do that, you know, you just, um, you're going to die. You know, you, you have no chance of survival. And um, so the big question is, was it suicide or was he pushed? Now, he did actually confide in friends and colleagues that he felt his life was in danger and somebody was going to take him out of circulation. He actually said that, went on the record, albeit quietly with, with uh, family and friends and things like that. Um, but also, uh, the day before he was found dead, his brother phoned the hospital and said, look, I'm coming tomorrow and I'm taking him home. So in other words, if somebody did want him gone, and you know, the, the, there was no way he could be uh, held there against his will, you know, it was essentially, uh, allegedly at least, for his own good. So what happened was that his brother said, well, I'm bringing him home tomorrow. It may not have been coincidence that it was that very night before tomorrow that he either fell or jumped or was pushed out of the window, you know, because there would have been no other chance to get rid of him. So uh, there are a lot of deep suspicions, not just within ufology, but within other aspects of conspiracy research and historical research who feel there's far more to the forestal death than meets the eye. Well, Nick, I'd like to apologize for my grabbing at bits and pieces the way I am and not quite remembering details as well as I usually do. Uh, oh, don't worry about that. I've been through a lot here lately, so. Yeah, I know. Uh, and I'm, I think my brain's been starving for oxygen. <laughs> well, don't worry about it. I mean, you know, I mean, I'm just glad that you feel, you know, positive and, and good, in, you know, at least good enough to sort of do the show. Like we said before the show, I'm, you know, I'm glad you're sort of keeping busy and you're fighting it and everything else. That's a, you know, a good thing. I, I know, but I was just sitting here listening to myself and I realized I didn't remember Forrester's name. I didn't remember uh, Georgia Dancy oh, no. real good. And, I, and I'm like, my God, all these little details that slipped away <laughs> from me. <laughs> Uh, don't worry, we got through it, we're getting, and we're getting through it, it's fine. So well, I was able to grab enough snatches to, the, to jog yeah. your memory. <laughs> um, but before we get out of here, which we still got about 15, 20 minutes or so, I don't want to run out of time without giving you a chance to talk about the newest book I've seen coming out. Uh, oh, God, what was the name of that book? Uh, Secret History. Huh? Secret History. Might have been it, might have been it. Was it about aliens and government? Um, well, yeah, it's, it's basically it's called Secret History, and the, the subtitles, Conspiracies from Ancient Aliens to the New World Order. And, um, it's the one right there. Yeah. And uh, it doesn't actually just cover, like most of my books like, do, like UFOs or Bigfoot and things like this. There are a lot of UFO stories and some Bigfoot chapters in there, but it also covers historical mysteries like... Um, who was Jack the Ripper? Uh, did Hitler survive the Second World War? Was there a conspiracy around the death of Abraham Lincoln? So in other words, it's sort of a, a his historical look at history's mysteries going back thousands of years through to the present day and covering everything from out-of-the-world stories to more down-to-earth um, historical mysteries. And um, 
and sort of putting like a new unique spin on some of the cases to try and figure out how much of history is correct and how much is what we believe to be correct but might not be after all. Well, was there any of it that you was actually able to find proof for? Is that most of it's still going to be a mystery? Well, that's one of the sort of frustrating things about a lot of cases, you know, and incidents with, which are sort of conspiracy cloaked, if you like. I mean, like Jack the Ripper, there are literally dozens of theories for who he might have been and what motivated his killings, everything from just a straightforward, crazy serial killer to the idea that he could have been a member of the British royal family, uh, to a surgeon, um, you name it pretty much, you know, the idea that... Um, the guesswork abounds. Yeah, but I think that's one of the reasons why the story is so fascinating, because specifically because it hasn't been resolved. You know, people often find that um, an unsolved mystery that, that lasts and lasts and endures often takes on almost sort of mythical, legendary proportions. And I think that's happened with the story of Jack the Ripper. Had he been solved years ago, he would have just been another crazy serial killer. The fact that there's so much mystery surrounding it, and even the name Jack the Ripper, it sort of, I guess, invokes a massive amount of mystery and intrigue and images of, like, foggy old London and dark nights and, you know, backstreet alleys and things like that. You would have thought, though... Well, no, he's not really only one out of what, uh, literally hundreds of uh, serial killers that to this day have never been uh, fingered? Well, yeah, and I think probably the main reason was because, you know, it was way back in 1888, so it's a long time ago. You know, certainly before Monday forensics and way, way before DNA analysis. Although there have been DNA studies done just recently, and which has led some people to believe that, you know, they've identified the culprit, but then other people came forward and said, well, no, it could be explainable by this instead. So, uh, you know, we're still, people are still arguing over who Jack the Ripper was, and, and probably always will be. You know, they'll always be uh, doing that, I think. Like they're still arguing over whether or not Kurt Cobain was a suicide or a murder. Yeah, and who killed Kennedy, and, you know, was it a conspiracy around the death of John Lennon? It, you know, a lot of these stories, they, not that they, it's not that they're not credible, it's just that they take on lives of their own, and there's so many different strands to them that it becomes very difficult at times to ascertain what the actual truth is. You know. Well, do you ever think and wonder that they're left out that way on purpose just to be a distraction to people? Um, well, yeah, it's actually a very good point because sometimes we we get, like, multiple angles or scenarios for a case. I mean, a classic one being the Kennedy assassination. I mean, we hear stories that it was the Cubans who killed him or the Mafia or the KGB or some rogue agency in government that wanted him gone. Now, clearly, they, all the scenarios can't be true, but I sometimes wonder if certain rumors are sort of implanted and spread just to confuse the real picture. And it, it's kind of like with Roswell. Uh, I have a chapter on Roswell in the book, and I point out that there are now no less than 12 theories for what happened at Roswell. Everything from like a UFO crash to the crash of a, a weather balloon, a mogul balloon, which is a military spy balloon. Airplane. Um, the, the, yeah, an airplane, the accidental dropping of, a, of an atomic bomb. Um, you know, that obviously didn't detonate, um, like a Soviet or a German 
uh, advanced device that came down. <clears throat> and I'm pretty sure that a lot of these stories have been totally bogus, but I, I think they've been skillfully inserted into the, the lore and the legend of Roswell to confuse the research community so we don't really know what the true answer is and how do you, if you can't hide the truth, the best way to deal with it is to confuse it and the best way to confuse it is put out multiple scenarios for what happened. So people end up, you know, with their heads spinning, not knowing which theory to believe. Well, you know, when I was a kid, my dad used to think it was funny to walk up to me and take his left hand and say, watch my hand, watch my hand and move it around my face and then pop me with the right hand and say, see what that one does. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but, exactly. you know, That's sort of a, a good analogy. <laughs> but what we're talking about now is pretty much the same thing. Well, you know, the reason why and how secrets are so easily kept is because you have people who are, who are skillfully adept at doing exactly that, hiding secrets. You know, I mean, it isn't always that easy just to hide something. Uh, it often requires not just hiding it, but working towards, you know, any eventuality that where the, the secret might come out, you have to have um, like a fail-safe thing in place yeah. to, to combat it. And, um, like Roswell. You know, when, yeah, when, for example, a story leaks out like Roswell um, and people start coming forward, that's when you have these people who are sort of specialists in understanding how to manipulate the truth and how to confuse people and how to push them down a different pathway and away from one that, you know, they might not want them looking into. And uh, and it's all sort of demonstrative of how, you know, so much goes behind, behind the scenes that we really aren't exposed to. You know, we're just, we're just seeing the front window, so to speak. Yeah, once we saw part of a deal that we weren't supposed to see, they can't hide it. Like you say, the next option is to confuse it. Or as I used yeah. to tell my kids, muddy the water. Exactly. <laughs> and kids, they're bad about muddy in the water <laughs> themselves when they're trying to explain their excuse to you. And I used to just fight to keep them from doing that, but it didn't always succeed. So um, we know you got this here. Uh, History's mysteries coming up. We know you got this here. Um, Close Encounters of the Fatal Kind out right now. What other uh, else is down the road for Nick? Um, well, actually, this Saturday I'll be on um, a travel channel show called uh, Mysteries at the National Parks and um, I'm on one episode uh, which will be broadcast this Saturday called um, Chupacabra Island and it was basically filmed on my most recent trip to Puerto Rico looking for the Chupacabra. I've been there quite a few times and um, and I was interviewed while I was there all about my sort of theories and thoughts on the Chupacabra of Puerto Rico. You know, is it some sort of unknown animal? Is it something that's extraterrestrial? Is it the result of weird genetic uh, experimentation? But as I said, that one will be on this coming Saturday on the Travel Channel, um, Mysteries at the National Parks, and the episode called Chupacabra Island. And then actually in September, I've got a book coming out called Chupacabra Road Trip, which, as the title suggests, it's basically a, a road trip diary-type book of all my expeditions around Puerto Rico, um, New Mexico, Texas, Oklahoma, uh, Mexico, and various other places looking for the Chupacabra and trying to find out the truth behind the legend. Okay. So, any chances you could share any uh, leanings you have to what a Chupacabra really is by any chance? 
or is that well, giving yeah, the candy sure. store away? <laughs> no, that's totally fine. Um, the, well, clearly the original Puerto Rican chupacabra that surfaced in the mid-1990s is a very, very different creature to these sort of strange-looking, hairless, dog-like animals that have been reported across the United States for the best part of a decade now. Um, what's happened is that the name chupacabra has been applied to both types of creature, but they're very actually very different. And so what's happening now, we're going to see more of a tendency where any strange-looking animals, people are saying, oh, well, it must be a chupacabra. So part of it is like a, a legend but developed out of very real, weird-looking animals. And um, the, the Puerto Rican one, for me, is still unidentified as to what it is. It's described as like a two-legged creature, somewhat kangaroo-like, but with spikes down its head and neck and um, vicious claws and fangs, whereas the, the U.S. one is like a hairless coyote. But it's not just a coyote with mange. These creatures appear to be developing hairlessly rather than falling victim to mange. They have um, issues with their, their limb lengths on as what they should be. The uh, front limbs are shorter um, than their back limbs, which gives them this weird hopping movement. They actually don't seem frightened of people, and they actually hunt during the day. These are two attributes that are not typical to regular coyotes. So my personal view is that there's some sort of spontaneous mutation going on within the species that is provoking these creatures to look so weird. Almost sounds like a science experiment gone wrong. Well, it may be something like that, or it could be like exposure, as I point out, to something like um, chemical pollution, because there are tie-ins between where these creatures have been seen and certain chemical plants that use what are called mutagens, which can cause massive DNA damage and cell and, and cause cell structure and DNA structure to alter and change. So we could be seeing something like that too. So if they got stuff like that out there, then the days of the X-Men may not be that far down the road. <laughs> well, you never know. Um, you know, it's, uh, if that is what the chupacabras are, then um, then clearly something drastically well, I say drastically wrong has occurred because these things, you know, I don't see any reason. Well, I don't see what the, you know, the motive would be other than just to see what we can do. Um, that's the only thing I can sort of rationalize. Why would people sort of mutate creatures like this deliberately? So if it's been done deliberately, it's just, I think, to see how far the technology and the science can lead us. And maybe some of these things have escaped from labs or something like that. Um, so, you know, there are a lot of different concepts and scenarios around, uh, surrounding the Chupacabra that people probably don't know a great deal about. But uh, hopefully, you know, with the book, it'll make people realize the sheer extent of a wide range of, of the, the history and story of the Chupacabra and how it sort of impacts across from Puerto Rico and then across South America, Central America, the United States and uh, and became basically like a piece of, you know, popular culture, so to speak. Yeah, I can't help but think that there actually might be factions out there, maybe even in the military complex, that would like to see one of these creatures developed into a weapon of war. Well, yeah, I mean, if, if they could do I actually talk about that in the book, but I mean, if they could do that, you know, create a really violent killing machine animal that was taught essentially let loose on the battlefield and just 
kill anything in its way. You know, I mean, that would that would work incredibly well. Um, it wouldn't surprise me if, you know, things like that have been thought of and discussed. I guess the big challenge is whether it could leap from the concept of what you see on paper, you know, to actually occur in the real world. And that's also one of the things I talk about in the book, where people have claimed that, yes, these experiments went on, but the animals couldn't be controlled or contained. And uh, when they escaped into like El Yonki in the rainforest in Puerto Rico, they were just left to their own devices because essentially the, the military was frightened to try and round them up. You know, and they felt intimidated by them as well. Oh, that'd be pretty bad. And then too, like yeah. I say, this is nothing more than really than speculation. I mean, God knows a lot yeah. of things out there are possible. Don't mean it's ever going to happen. <laughs> no, that's right. And that's why in the book, I, uh, I sort of talk about, seven or eight different theories for what they they might be, ranging from, on the one hand, controversial stuff like, could they be something supernatural or paranormal that was, like, invoked? Uh, that's one of the theories, that they were sort of invoked by, um, like, occult-type organizations that, you know, uh, performed supernatural rituals and manifested them. Then you have, like I said, the genetic experiment, you have the idea that it's some sort of alien creature let loose on the island. Um, and other people think it could be anything from like a giant bat um, to just an animal that science hasn't classified yet. So there are a lot of different theories as to what they might be. Well, Nick, I'm sure we've got four minutes left, but let me exit out with this here little uh, food for thought, I guess you'd call it. You're talking about these uh, chupacabras. And you know the different other kind of animals because you got Bigfoot, you got Loch Ness, you got Mothman, you got the Batman, uh, which you wrote about the Batman in that one book. Yeah. Um, could all of these be kind of like in um, products of different experiments? You think maybe? Um, well, I'd be more inclined to think that today, you know, and I think the Texas Chupacabra clearly, for me at least, the, the Texas and the U.S. Chupacabra uh, is probably something that's the result of mutation, deliberate or not, or accidental. But and I don't think we had the technology, say, back in the 50s to create something like the Houston Batman, this weird wing thing that people reported, or Mothman in the 60s. I think if we had the ability to genetically alter creatures back then, it would have come out. So I don't doubt, you know, but we know that you know legislation exists today to prevent sort of freakish genetic experimentation on cells from occurring, like gene splicing and cell splicing, you know, creating chimeras, as they're called. There there are laws in place that are supposed to govern that. But we didn't have that technology, as far as we know, you know, way back half a century ago. So I think we're dealing with possibly today creatures that may have been mutated. Some of the earlier reports just may well have been animals and creatures that we haven't identified or found yet. So... uh, I think we've possibly got a couple of different things going on. All righty. Well, Nick, thanks for coming to my show to talk about this, and I hope to have you back to talk about your next book here in the near future. You know, it's always a pleasure, and I really enjoy talking to you. All right. Well, thanks for having me on again, Royce. Thank you. You have a good one. You too. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. 
The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.